This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this current cycle of episodes, which have arrived to your podcasting service each Sunday from the beginning of February until now, the end of April 2021, I have offered my weekly reflections on what it's been like teaching a college course on theater and society now when all the theaters and all the colleges are still trying to figure out what it means to do theater, to do college remotely during an ongoing global health crisis, not to mention political chaos, economic precarity, and demands for racial reckoning, basically all the still unfolding uncertainties that defined the year 2020 and which continue to shape our discovery of whatever it is the year 2021 might yet have in store for us. In this week's episode, I reflect reflect variously on a loose assortment of topics. The anticipated return to face-to-face college, some come this fall. My first four-show Saturday in a long time. And the possible, possibly permanent end to this podcast all as I ponder the question of where in the pandemic pivot are we actually? Are we arriving to the end of the remote moment? Are we in the middle of the remote turn? Or are we at the beginning of the remote era? But without further ado, here we go. So here we are. It's the beginning of the end. No, I'm kidding. Uh, It is the beginning of the end of cycle four of the Stinky Lulu Says podcast, because this is my last episode of this cycle. Um, However, it's and I also don't know whether it's the end of the podcast altogether. I don't know if we're going to if I'm going to come back and start recording new episodes in the fall or any time in the future, or if it'll be another four or five years before uh, the podcast comes back to life like a like a sort of a social media zombie. I I don't know what the future of the podcast is. And I think because I've been thinking about the podcast and the ways it's been so valuable, the way it's been an interesting tool for me, both as a teacher and as a thinker, all of those things, as I've reflected on the fact that this is the last episode in preparation for today, it's also amplified my uncertainty that about the future of the podcast. Like, I honestly don't know if the podcast is going to come back. And that just feels like fitting, right? Because we are in this moment where those of us, those of us who are teaching or taking college right now, we are approaching the end of our third semester that has been defined by our ongoing and constant and ever-changing adjustments to the reality of the pandemic. So we're at the end, so to speak, of this third semester, which has been defined by the experience of the pandemic, by has been defined by this new encounter with this reality of remote learning and a remote performance. And as we do so, it's been, um, it's also reminding me that with each ending, it's been sort of a transition to more. Like we haven't reached toward a resolution of this moment. And indeed, as I've spoken about before on the podcast is I don't know where we are. And I'm not sure if how I feel about leaving this phase of the world we've been in. I because And in some ways, I think it is because I don't know. I can't really orient. I just orient myself. Like I don't know where we are in this pandemic pivot. What I know for sure is for the last 14 or 15 months, we have constantly been engaged in a pandemic pivot of adjusting our how we do the things we love doing in to accommodate the pressures and expectations and uncertainties of the pandemic. What I don't know is if we are where we are in relation to that on all kinds of levels. And so that guides my thoughts today as I ponder the question of where in the pandemic pivot are we actually? Are we arriving to the end of a pandemic moment? This start this sort of particular episode in our our collective history where the pandemic defined it. Or are we in the middle of something that is a turn? A turn that is going to be marked by the fact of this remote era. Are we in something of a turn, perhaps with remote, uh, the idea of remoteness being sort of a new negotiation of how we relate to each other? Or are we at the beginning of a remote era? Are we we entering into a new phase of, of collective and collaborative experience that is going to be guided by these premises and discoveries that we've discovered that we've encountered during this remote period? I don't know. 
And that's, I think, part of what un undergirds my awareness and my uncertainty right now is I, uh, and it's not like I expect to know things, but one of the gifts that, one of the reasons I think I became, a, one of the reasons I know I became a professor and chose to pursue the uncertain path of working in the academy is that I realized at a certain point that as a person who had really thrived in school and had used school as a structuring principle in my life through a lot of different transitions as a child and young adult, I realized what I most valued about the college experience and what I most valued about the academic calendar was its cyclical reboot. This idea that we would have these sort of moments of intensity that would come to a agreed upon conclusion, and we'd have this moment of pause and adjustment and reconnection, and then we'd start again with a new set of experiences, encounters, and discoveries. What I loved about it was that predictable structure of sort of arcs of intensity, beginning and closure, but then also the idea that it will be different again soon. Like uh, when I went to when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school, it was typically like quarters, nine weeks, and sometimes classes would change. Sometimes it would be a there'd be these moments of marking and beginning, and then they'd be punctuated by these breaks where you wouldn't be in the school groove. But it would be for me, I would always look forward to the breaks. I'd always look forward to the return and the start of the new adventure of school. So for me one of the pleasures and rewards and the really sort of deeply ingrained structuring principles of my life has been these cycles, these cycles of clarity, these cycles of clarity about the academic term and about how I know that this is how the, how the, how the rhythm works and what I do in these different phases of, of my period. And I, I think what's happened over the last 15 months is all of those ingrained needs of what time meant, of what the calendar meant, of what, um, what, what the academic project was allowed for these structures of sort of engagement and renewal, they have been a bit disrupted because I worked pretty constantly on stuff I would normally not be working on in the summer. I wasn't working on my independent work in the summer last summer in 2020. Instead, I was doing a lot of work in terms of community maintenance and pedagogy adjustment and doing a lot of things. So in some ways, it felt like the semester never ended. And that has been the case through the winter. And so it's been this sort of constant. It's been it feels in some ways like it's been the longest, the fifth like instead of a 12 or 14 week semester, it's been more like a 12 or 14 month semester. Uh, and so I don't really know what we're bouncing into. I don't know what the summer's going to feel like. And a big thing is we still don't know what it's going to be like to return. And as I've mentioned before, as I'm very much aware of my awareness for myself, of it's going to be a bit of a culture shock for me to return to the classroom. And I'm trying to be patient with myself, but also and to be empathetic with myself in the ways that it's going to be differently stressful for me to return to the classroom than it would be in a normal year. And I'm also aware that if I'm experiencing that, I'm certainly not going to be the only one. So there's going to be other folks in my campus community who are experiencing the same um, uncertainties or stresses and culture shocks about returning, the ways in which we're different than we were before, but also in the way of what we need from this space of being on college campuses is going to be different. So part of what I'm thinking about is what about this anticipated return to face-to-face -face college? Like, I think we've seen, most of us have encountered folks in our lives who are just dying to get back to campus, who are just dying to get back to everything face-to-face. -face. Let's get back to normal. Let's do it. Let's get to it. And then we're probably aware of some other folks who are feeling a little bit reluctant. Sometimes they might be naming that in terms of pandemic anxieties, but it also is about a shifting of an interpersonal rhythm that has been really recalibrated. I think that what we're going to encounter and what I'm experiencing in myself is that I have, um, I have done okay in certain ways without having a lot of face-to-face. And so I think the emotional stress and the emotional labor of being face to face again, it's going to shift my rhythm. Some of my stamina is going to be have to adjust. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a turtle in a certain way in that I really go with routine and it takes me a while to adjust. And I'm just I'm just aware that uh, I don't know how I'm going to respond to the fall. And that uncertainty is unsettling a little bit. So, I mean, and also I think we're going to see a lot of things like I've, one of the ways I have been thinking a lot about the fall is how some of the pedagogical discoveries, some of the techniques and tools I've, I've explored during the pandemic, what are the ways I might be able to reintegrate them? And in particular, um, the question of things like the podcast, like the podcast, when the podcast began, it began as a way to sort of diminish the amount of expected face-to-face -face or what we would call synchronous classroom time uh, to sort of create some buffers so that we didn't have to meet for three hours a week 
but that, that there could be a sort of an asynchronous lecture component that would not require you or me to sort of engage with a sort of an hour long video, but in some ways have a slightly different engagement, something that felt a little bit looser, something that felt a little bit more like the seminar experience. So that's why I decided to reboot the podcast to sort of fortify the number of contact minutes of curricular minutes in the class, but also allow for a different mode of engagement. And that gave me some measure of buffer in terms of creating some flexibility in terms of how how much time all of the students in my seminars were expected to be in the room together, in the Zoom room together. That's one tool pedagogically that I've been thinking about. Do I want to keep using that? What is the benefit of that? What is the benefit of not at, you know, what can a podcast give to a seminar? What, why might I use it? And so I've been wondering about that. But additionally, in my lecture classes, there's been a lot of things as well as a lot of things I've been doing that I'm trying to figure out which are the ones that are worth keeping and adapting for in-person instruction. And then also, how do we do some of the things that have been really great remotely, like having remote visitors? But then also, I'm wondering, too, it's been a real gift uh, for my classes this year to be able to sort of make a lot of performances available to students without having to have the performances be things that require a dedicating a full day or near full day to travel to New York. You know, so what what is it like to be able to sort of incorporate remote performance opportunities in addition to in-person opportunities? And so do, what is that what that what that what's that horizon going to be like for my classes in which a good measure of performance attendance or performance engagement is a key part of it? So these are some of the questions that I when I want to when I go when I can think more intellectually about what it'll mean to return, I focus on that. When I think more emotionally about what it's going to return, I freak out a little bit. So it's that balance of not knowing uh, the and how indeed I think what I'm aware of, and I may be wrong on this, and I hope I am. What I feel is we've had three consecutive academic semesters that have been defined by the pandemic. I actually believe we're going to have a fourth, which is when we return. And I think it's going to be as exhausting and as stressful and as confusing and as complicated as all of the three semesters prior. Um, even though we're going to be getting back to normal, as it were. And so I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping it's a little bit of a, glided e a gliding ease that folks glide in and are ready to do it, and just everything sort of locks into place, and we're able to be creative and innovative at the same time as we're able to sort of re return to some practices and traditions that we've missed. But um, that's the optimistic side. I think that will happen. I also think it's going to be pretty freaky and stressful for some folks. I think it's going to, there's going to be some, there's going to be some culture shock pains. And so I'm just, um, I guess what I'm saying is for me, I'm telling myself that so I can ready myself for the fact that I can't assume it's going to be just fun getting back to the way things were, because as there's a line in a musical that says, we can't go back to before. We have been changed by these 15 months, and I think our experience of the college encounter will be forever transformed as well, even as the traditions and longstanding practices of, of in-person college education return, there's going to be certain things that we are going to approach differently forever. And so, so that's one of the things too, and I think I was thinking about that in relation to an experience I had yesterday where um, without really planning to, um, I, had, I saw four shows yesterday. On Saturday, um, April 24th, I had a four show day, which is something I think I've done before, but it's hard to do in real life to see four shows in a day. Because if you wanna see four shows in a day in person, and it's not part of say, a, I mean, I've seen it, I think I've definitely done it as part of a festival, but these were shows that were offered in very different contexts and very different, um, very different ways and modalities. And so it would have been, even if they were all in New York City, which, uh, three of the four were, it would have been, they were all in, would have been in very different neighborhoods, probably. One was in East Village, one was in the Midtown on the East Side, one would have likely have been staged somewhere in Midtown West. Um, and then the fourth, of course, was in Actors Theatre Louisville. So I don't think that would have been really a plausible option for me to jut from three shows. But it was, in some ways, I've seen three shows. Um, I've seen three or four. It's not uncommon for me to have a three-show day. That's pretty usual. Because what I often do is I stack my days in New York. Because when I travel to New York in particular... I really want to make sure I maximize that time. So I almost always do what I call a double header. But off, occasionally I will find a way to squeeze another show in, go to an early show, go to a late show. And that's not totally difficult. It's different to do four shows in a day. And of course, even my four show days yesterday, they were all remotely. They were all, they were done um 
Uh, I engaged them in different rooms in my house. So I did move around in different rooms in my house. Um, but they were, and some were engaged by uh, watching on a device that bounced to my television. Others were engaged on my computer screen. So there were some slightly different things. But one of the things that was striking about the four show days is A, it was possible. Uh, that I could do it. B, it was, they were very different modalities. One was a play reading. One was a presentation of an original musical. One was a restaging of a, of what is becoming a classic musical. And the other was a an immersive um, sort of theatrical encounter experience, an interactive theatrical encounter experience. So there are four very different modes. And uh, what was striking to me about it was how all of them really drew upon the opportunities of the remote performance era in a way that I thought were quite productive. Because the four shows I saw were um, a musical experiment called Trees, a new musical by a composer artist named, performance artist named Moore. Um, and it was a sort of a song cycle. It was a short song cycle, about 40 minutes, maybe not even not even 40 minutes, probably more like 30 minutes long of a series of songs that opened up questions about ecological consciousness through the metaphor of the interconnected ways that trees hold memory, history and community, the ways that trees experience trauma in particular ways. And um, it was just beautiful. It's a beautiful piece that's been up. I was I was embarrassed to say it's been up. It's been available for about four months since the end of Dece from since December. I think it had its had its first streaming premiere. Um, but I became aware of it because it had an expiration date. So I snuck in yesterday to catch it and watched it um, twice because uh, I saw somebody mentioning that it was it benefited for two viewings. And since it was relatively short, it was really easy to do to do that. And uh, doing so, I would agree. It was a really quite remarkable piece, um, reminiscent of um, sort of Dave Malloy or some of the sort of the the experimental song structures, uh, a little bit of kind of a uh, sort of techno, like it sort of got a little bit of a kind of very contemporary sort of emo pop kind of sound to it, but also kind of new opera. So there was a real mix of styles and it was visually quite, quite stunning and also felt very much like being part of an experiment and watching a voice find itself and really find itself without shame or apology in bridging the spaces of social media performance of offering songs on social media and then finding ways to offer them on stages. And then, cause this was a production that had slated, was slated to premiere at La Mama live, but then pivoted to a, a virtual, a, a digital screening presentation um, uh, sponsored by the Wild Project. And it was one of those examples which I thought, which I've seen a couple times of, of a Generation Z or millennial, uh, theater creators who are really at home on social media spaces of performance. And so the pivot or the adaptation of sort of figuring out it's sort of the same project, it's just what's its platform, thinking about theater and live and performance as one platform for a broader question of how performance can activate conversations and aesthetics conversations, political conversations, and intellectual conversations. And I do think that the composer um, artist Moore is a MUR is a really notable figure to keep an ear and eye out for because I do think they do feel like listening to them feels like I'm listening to the future of the musical theater. And that's very exciting. Uh, the next show I saw was a show presented by um, Actors Theater, theater at Louisville, which is one of the most important regional theater companies that is known and known historically for a festival, which often launches or gives a high profile to key emerging voices or key emerging plays. Like it's a really interesting forum for uh, going back to the 1980s have been an important platform and forum for introducing and announcing the importance of particular voices and writers uh, to, to, uh, to the field. And Block Association Project, however, is a really interesting and confounding, and uh, I was sort of dreading it going in. It's a it's a play of sorts by Michael Yates Crowley, but it's also a performance scenario in which the audience is acted is invited to interact, and it really does adapt to the space of the Zoom platform. In that what we are as audience members is invited to participate in a uh, the Oak Street Block Association as though we are residents of that neighborhood. And so the way the production is set up is it's announced that there'll be a meeting at this particular time. Um, I was attending a 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon meeting. And so um, there, there's a, t a certain time that you're supposed to show up and your house is supposed to join via Zoom and you join in and all those things. And um, 
and uh, in the week or so in advance of your uh, of your arrival to the show, uh, the email with which you, that you use to register for the show, you start beginning getting getting um, emails from the Oak Street Block Association, which is sort of a listserv or it's something like it, um, where you're starting to get like eavesdrop on a conversation among neighbors. <laughs> and embarrassingly enough, I made my reservation early this week, and on uh, and like I started getting emails. And I didn't understand what I was getting. And I thought I had been inadvertently subscribed to some email through a spam kind of thing. And I looked up Oak Street Block Association. I saw it was in Kentucky. And I said, oh, there must have been some glitch when I made that ticket reservations, completely forgetting that the show I was signing up for was the Block Association project. So I complete and I sent an email saying, please remove me from the list. And then somebody replied very back to me very graciously saying, well, I think you're joining our meeting on Saturday. Do you really want me to take your name off the list? I realized like, oopsie doodle, I am actually. And so I began to realize that these voices, these characters, these little sort of online flare ups that I was seeing was probably sort of a prelude or pre-show as it were to the experience of the, of the actual show. And indeed that's what happened because the show was set up as a meeting of this of this of this uh of this association um when they were sort of asked to sort of come together and figure out and there's some question as we enter in we're dropped in on media res and that we're sort of there uh just in the middle of it and there's already sort of conversation and disagreement going on among the key players and it's clear from my point of view that there was a kind of not there was not a clarity about leadership like there was a kind of very different styles like a past leader a current leader somebody who really wanted to be a leader some newcomers and some grouches all of whom were sort of sniping at each other in the moments before the meeting began and then it became clear as the meeting went along that as a meeting began that there was going to be there's there's very different philosophical orientations about what uh a group like a block association was there to do was it there to improve community uh was it there to improve community relationships was it there to uh define some agreements about how things like dog walking or lights at night would work or was it about enhancing property values or was it uh an um sort of an annoyance and in, in sort of getting in the way of people just living their own lives as separate people who happen just live next to each other on a block. And so there was clearly these different cultural values at work. And then of course, because it was a Zoom frame, there was a moment when we went to breakout rooms and we introduced ourselves and there was a facilitator, there was one of the people leading the conversation who was asking us particular questions about like asking us to introduce ourselves, share an unexpected fact, offer our definition of community. Then we went back to the group and then we talked some more and then we then there came this moment of elections and there was disagreement about how do we vote on this and then we went back to the group and had a discussion and we went back and then there was a pretty dramatic pivot when the primary one of the primary points of consideration uh suddenly shifted gears in a kind of a lot of dramatic turns happened around uh the election around the certain decision that had to be made but then also a surprise event that caused everybody's uh relationship to the, what had happened before shift in some significant measure and what i will say about this this perf this kind of theater is it was really quite striking to me how uh, how this kind of you know, per participant observation participant engagement it would be possible in uh, in a sort of in person context but there was something quite striking about the confidence that audiences engaged in via the Zoom platform there was something about the Zoom platform and everybody zooming in from their own homes and engaging in certain ways as they might a meeting that they've been participating over Zoom. There was something about it that was really quite effective in a way for me that I came into it a little bit cranky. I almost thought like maybe I'm going to ditch out. I don't know if I'm going to stick it out. But I ended up sticking it out because I'm, that's I always stick it out. And I was really uh, interested by the ways that the production chose to utilize the Zoom technique, utilize this way of bringing people in from all kinds of places. And also, I think I found it much more rewarding via a remote platform than I would have in an in-person platform, because it didn't ask me to invest more in the people I was interacting with. It allowed there to be just enough distance, but also just enough investment. I ended up becoming much more engaged and invested than I expected to in a way that uh, was surprising to me. So it was an interesting example. The next show I saw 
um, was a show I'd missed. Uh, I had had a ticket before a couple months ago, but had missed, um, which was uh, out of the box theater, out of the box companies staging of the last five years of production, a streaming production of the musical piece by Jason Robert Brown that was staged by out of the box productions, which out of the boxes of productions is a company I'm somewhat familiar with. They often stage uh, musicals, reimagine stagings of musicals, in, often in sort of found spaces or real spaces. Like I saw a production of theirs of the musical Baby that was actually staged in an apartment. So there's often it's really based on close proximity. And, and often what uh, out of the box productions is also really invested in is bringing um, uh, uh, not like imagining, reimagining musicals that um, finding ways to really lean into some of the core premises of non-traditional casting and how by casting actors for whom this show might not have been scripted, like a disabled actor or a person of color, how that might actually enhance and our appreciation of what's going on in the text, how it's not about changing it, but actually really thinking of it as a dynamic and open, not pretending it's colorblind, but understanding that this will change and inflect how we experience and see this show. And so what this was was the last five years, which was a musical piece with two singers, two characters, and it's staged in a sort of a pretty remarkable conceit of two of two opposite running timelines of a relationship breaking up. So what we see is we see the history of a relationship through two lenses. One, uh, moving forward as the person falls in love and then fall, gets married and then the relationship falls apart and it ends and we see it in that sequence. And then um, threaded within that is we see that same story but told in reverse of the beginning of it when the when a person is devastated at the loss at the end of this relationship and then we move backwards through their own disaffection into the moment of connection and then back into the glow of early of the early life of this love and it was staged in this case like the the piece was originally crafted as being sort of a jewish guy and a uh, non-jewish woman you know and so it was presumptively white all these things there have been other stagings of it that might, might have explored different things indeed i have seen one production with a um with a uh you know, Latino and uh, Manasa actor, you know, and so all these different things. So there's ways in which the cultural specificity of the show can actually work in different contexts, especially because Jewish Judaism and Jewishness is quite culturally diverse. So here it was a really remarkable show. And I think what was most remarkable about it was how it really imagined it in intimacy, how the piece, how the staging of the piece, because it was staged in a single apartment, um, was really staged in a way to amplify the emotional intimacy of how these characters were really in each other's lives. And so we saw them in a, we saw the scenes, not with them off to one side or singing alone, but we saw them singing as the protagonist in a moment in their memory. And so the other actor would be there playing along with them or being with them, but it wouldn't necessarily be in that character's time. It would be through the eyes of the character who is singing. And so it was a really quite remarkable, remarkable performances. It was really quite a, quite a striking or, or orientation to the show. And one of the things I found most striking about it was that it was a um, version of the piece that was very, it worked very well in a streaming format, but it, and it didn't feel like a movie though it used cinematic techniques. So it did open up for me the ways of how a theatrical exploration of a piece could use digital tools, a way to explore it without having the full investment of a cinema or a film version, but, um, but using those tools to open up a new understanding of a piece. And so there was something about it that I thought was really quite striking, which again goes to the final piece I saw, which was a staged, uh, rehearsed staged, it was a semi, it wasn't a reading exactly, but it wasn't a full production either in, of a production by Rihanna Yassi called Adi, which is Addie, which is really thinking about the, the diasporic connections of indigeneity and blackness, especially with regard to sort of the modern art moment of primitivism and of sort of the 1920s and 30s surrealism, this idea of how uh, indigenous cultures and African cultures were drawn upon as the source of inspiration. And it's a play by Rihanna Yazi, who's a Navajo playwright, who really thinks about might there be unexplored cultural legacies of conjunction within, through indigeneity that actually sort of marks out these what would seem to be very disparate experiences of the Afro-Caribbean or of the uh, American Southwest of what does this sort of the dis of being discovered peoples and of having one's cultural creativity and one's cultural genealogy and cultural legacy and even one's spirit be the source of um, extractive, ex extractive inspiration by European artists. And so 
what it struck me was is it's one of the things I've really come to appreciate about the remote era is how well suited it is to activate uh, a careful, expansive listening of a play that outside of production. So a play that doesn't necessarily have a production, how might that play have a new uh, audience if we're engaging it in, through the sketches, through the sort of the, the gestures of interpretation that a reading would provide or a partial production or a remote production might provide. Not offering this as a production of the play, but as a way to sort of engage the text of a play using the tools of performance um, as a way to activate our imagination, the way we've seen in audio books and audio plays doing it, and the way that certain kinds of remote stagings actually do activate this sort of a brushstroke of a performance that can be much more widely seen than the 12 to 120 people that might see it at a given night. So this idea of how for certain kinds of plays that can really engage the conversation and amplify the conversation, but the kind of which that might not ever inspire the commitment, the financial or other commitment of a full producer, what are the ways that this track can really open up our return to listening to plays as opposed to looking for theater as a sort of transformative experience, as a dazzling experience? or an important experience? What are the ways that the remote era has given us and more audiences ways of engaging with plays that are ways about thinking with them aesthetically and intellectually and politically and spiritually in a way that doesn't necessarily rely on full production. So interestingly, as I come to the end of this segment, I think it was an interesting four day, four show day in that it marked out sort of the what I find to be inspiring and animating about the remote theater era and the remote performance era, as I also wonder, what will we hold on to? What will we continue to have access to when wherever we are in this pivot uh, shifts next? So I'll pause now and be right, be back right after a break. And we're back. One thing I neglected to mention that I think is also sort of fascinating is I think I saw all four of those shows, including the two times I watched Trees. I think I saw all four of them within 12 hours, which I just don't think would be physically possible in real life. So there is a way in which um, the culture hound in me, the person who is just voracious and always wanting to consume culture and engage culture and encounter culture, there's something about... Um, about the remote era that does afford a different access. And indeed, that question of access, as we've seen in the conversations on Theater Click, it's a dual-edged sword. You know, even as I was talking about how um, being able to encounter this uh, rehearsed presentation of Rihanna Yazzie's Addy, uh, and how that was a really valuable encounter for me, because I don't know that I would ever have, like, I don't know when I would have an opportunity to see a full production of that play. It does open up that question that Larissa Fasthorse raised on social media last week or so about the question of, is this going to create a second tier of uh, performance opportunities that is going to be mostly relegated to non-mainstream or specialized or niche audiences? And I do think that is something we want to balance, but that's why I think it's really always worth us considering questions of form. And this is where I think my four show day was instructive because there were certain forms of theater that were really well suit well suited to this to this moment of of this way of how do we reimagine a text or how do we reimagine the idea of interactive theatrical encounter or how do we allow an emerging voice to fully express itself to be about to be evaluated especially in a resource dense field like musical theater. And then also how do we give broader access to a play by uh, by a sort of uh, an indigenous playwright who that may or may not ever have a full, may or not in the this year at least, have a full production of the theater near us. So this question of what are the forms, because I do think the, the forms of the reading, the forms of the test production, the forms of, of giving, an, giving an emerging artist a lot of room to experiment without a lot of expectation of things coming back in terms of being successful in a three-day run. Because uh, something like Trees would have, in, in, its, in its real life performance at La Mama, might have had a three-week three, three week run at max. But I don't know what its numbers are, but it was it was play, it was accessible for four months 
uh, through a variety of platforms, and I think it might still be continued to be accessible afterwards. So there's a way in which that question of not so much of access to it, but of access to the work of of allowing folks who are interested but may have to make selective choices among what are the what are the projects that are have the higher profile or prestige might in some ways get more attention and you'll squeeze in some of the little projects along the way. I do think some of these little projects have the opportunity of having a greater impact and a greater audience and indeed developing greater traction than these one shot um, up and out kind of strategies that a lot of theater production in the United States has. So I do think that's going to be an interesting set of questions for us to encounter. All of these works were works that were really um, rooted in our moment, thinking about diversity, thinking about justice, thinking about future, thinking about the question of exploitative relationships to the environmental and cultural resources around us. And also the question, uh, opening up the question of what is our implication in relation to the people around us. So all of these things are, I think, are very interesting because it does remind, it does give me an opportunity. As I was watching it yesterday, specifically, and particularly as I was watching, as I was encountering or engaging. Um, again, I always try to use for remote performance. I try to talk about it in terms of not watching or seeing, but more encountering and engaging. But as I was engaging in particular, um, Block Street, Block Association project and um, last five years, I was really aware of the fact that those projects were projects that had benefited from nearly a year of the pandemic pivot. That these were projects that were emerging into a measure of sophistication of production that were um, really, it seemed, rooted in the discoveries that had been made since March of 2020. And so I do think most of, and uh, they were pr produced in the 11th and 12th months of the 11th, 12th and 13th months of the pandemic. So there was a measure of sophistication. And that's again, where like when I teach theater history and when I talk about theater, one of my jokes is, theater makers, performance makers are scavengers and hoarders. They never throw anything away. The techniques that they discover in a particular era, if they discover that they're useful, they'll go into the repertoire, they'll go into the storage closet, they'll go into the, the costume work, they'll go into, and then some somewhere along the way, they will be rediscovered and redeployed when they seem useful again, which is again, part of what I'm thinking of in terms of a, a artistic practice. In terms of an artistic practice, I think that uh, this discoveries of the remote performance era will definitely survive. We will see them again. We will continue to engage them. And I think especially in university contexts, we will start seeing folks who choose to work more remotely. Like we're going to see a, a repertoire of practice in, involved, especially in campuses like the one I work at. What I am curious, though, about is the question of social practice, because theater, when we think about theater and indeed the premise of the classes I teach, I always teach theater as a cultural tradition and an artistic tradition, but I also teach it as a tradition of social practice. How does theater and performance operate as social practice? And I do think the question of this mode of coming together, what does theater do? What are the spaces configured? What are the invitations and challenges posed? What are the assumptions of audience? What are the assumptions of engagement? What are the sort of the economic acts, uh, structures of opportunity and access? All of these things are the social practice of theater. And I do think what we also have seen in a way that has been a little bit different is a lot of the innovation we've seen in theater has been innovation we've encountered in social practice in other segments of our lives. When we come together for worship or, or counseling, when we come together in community for parties and gatherings, when we come together for meetings, when we do our work, when we go to class, we're using a lot of these same techniques and practices. And so that's one of the things that's very different about this era. In addition to the fact, one of the things that was first very clear to me about this era in performance, on the performance side, was that for the very first time, it was a flattening in certain ways and that experienced theater makers were at the same, were suddenly, it was a leveling of a playing field in some ways that, you know, folks could work, um, a, an early career theater maker might be work with a be working with a long-term theater maker, somebody who'd been working for 20 or 30 years, and they would suddenly be discovering the same tools at the same time. So there was an element of this, of a co-discovery, of simultaneous discovery for theater makers of all stripes. And indeed, another performance I saw this week, which I thought was quite remarkable, was just the first installment 
and Club Thumb's presentation of the Women's Project, which is a really remarkable play. It's a really beautiful production, and I'm looking forward to seeing the next two installments as they come out over the summer. But one of the things about it that's really quite remarkable is it is understood in the way I'm talking about it. It's a virtual presentation of a play that really asks us to listen to the words of the play, using the visual elements of the production to help us keep track, but never imagining that this is a sort of a replacement for the live. But it does sort of really lean into the question of how does it amplify our capacity to listen to and experience a dramatic text. And so every acting choice and every design choice is really asking us to listen to the play. And one of the things about it that I find remarkable too is that as I know a little bit about the production is um, the production is uh, the actors are all older women, I think almost exclusively nearly exclusively women uh, over 50, maybe in, in many cases over 60 and over 70, who, um, as the production company has told me, is they found it a really interesting experience to sort of work with these actors all over the country with their differential experiences of technology and, uh, and be part of how these older actors are learning how to, to do the work that they have to do in terms of um, doing their own in-home costume and, and art direction and all this kind of stuff. And so there's a way in which there's a kind of a learning curve that has been broadly shared. But I wonder, and so when I look at a play like the women's, uh, um, that's not the women's project, whatever, whatever it was, I forgot, I, I forgot what I just called it. But the Club Thumb production that's coming out over the next few months is um, one that I think is is a really interesting example of, I hope that I continue to see the shows like that. I watched it rapidly. I thought it was delicious and delightful. And I thought it, it was, um, it really helped me hear the play. And I think that that's what I'm most looking forward to in productions is productions like Block Street Association Project or productions like Last Five Years or productions like It's Gonna Bother Me Now. I'm gonna have to remind myself of the um, Club Thumb production um, that I'm, so give me a moment. The Woman's Party. The Woman's Party, which talks about historically about the Woman's Party and their early fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. So plays like the last five years, Block Association, The Woman's Party, all are plays that seem to be trusting the digital platform in ways that activate what it can do and also have cl clarify in some ways what the project of the production is, whether it's a project of really asking us to reconsider our practices of relating to each other using the interactive protocols of Zoom to do so, whether it's about encountering a particular text and really understanding it through a different lens in a way that um, I'm frankly hoping we see or continue to see productions like out of the box productions of last five years, uh, especially with regard to musicals, especially with ways of experimenting with what this particular musical might look, sound and feel like without it having to be a full film. And then also a play, a production like The Woman's Project, which which really asks us to sort of. Uh, takes all the cues of how do we lift up a play and bring in the expert artistry of collaborating artists to sort of help us hear the argument, ideas, the emotion of a play um, in a way that is both um, totally similar to, but utterly different than uh, a play in person. I mean, in some ways, the Women's Party, like the work I've seen um, from Quarantine, uh, Quarantine Theater, um, are productions that when I see it on there, when I saw the women's party, the women's party installment, that the first one that was out, I was like, I can't wait to see this live. I also can't wait to see the next video installment. It, it's not an either or, it becomes a both and. And I think that's only better for the form, especially in terms of teaching the form and especially in terms of engaging the form and all of its possibilities. So I guess that's where I'll, where I'll, where I'll sort of resolve my thoughts because I think what I am really thinking about today, as I think about the conclusion of this podcast, is, is how do we, how, how in the blur of all the stress and the trauma and the transition of 15 months in pandemic pivot, um, I guess what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping is that this is not an episode that the, everything we've done in this remote era, that remote performance is not an episode, is not a quirk, is not a glitch, is not a fad. That remote performance, I'm hoping that everything we've learned in this period is not dismissed or tossed aside as a fad or an emergency measure. 
um, like a wartime measure. Like sometimes we'll see things like Victory Gardens from World War II or these sort of recycling drives or re repurpose and reuse these community projects that emerged in World War II, which were really defining the era. But once the end of the world war came along, everybody went back to their individual lives. And suddenly a lot of those moments that were really about coming together in these new techniques and strategies of community and self-sufficiency and all these things sort of fell away. I'm hoping that the pandemic pivot is not an episode of that sort. I and I suspect we are not entering a remote era. I suspect we are not entering a period of indefinite space where remote will be the dominant phase of engagement. Though I do think, given that remote theater is in some ways the artic, as I've argued before, as in some ways remote performance is in some ways the natural expression of 20 years in a social mediator landscape of this balance of mediation and asynchronicity, how in some ways remote performance sort of breathes into those vocabularies as all of us have engaged them in different measures. And so I don't think it's necessarily only the emergence and the blossom of remote performance is not only the result of the trauma of the pandemic, it's actually a cultural evolution that is relevant and makes sense given the way that culture has begun to travel, circulate, and move in the last 20 years in the social mediated era. So even though I think that part of this is about us moving into um, a remote, an era where remote engagement was more common, like more people working from home and remote instruction taking different forms, these ways of coming together for meetings and other modes of engagement for um, gathering together, community gatherings, so you don't have to come together for a reunion all the time. Sometimes you can have a remote reunion, all those things. I think all of those things are going to persist in certain ways. And that's why I do think that we are actually um, in the first stages of what will largely be a um, what we could call the remote turn the turn toward an embrace of understanding the difference between synchronous and asynchronous, of understanding the difference and not understanding them as being an either or, but in a both and, that there will be a both and approach to um, uh, synchronous engagement as in real person face-to-face -face, and asynchronous engagement as in not real person or not face-to-face -face in real time. Uh, we'll sort of have both of those, which we've long had. You can watch a video, you can see a play. But I think what we're beginning to see is how, which components of the asynchronous and the synchronous are going to be working together. And when, when are the devices, when folks plan a conference, when folks plan a performance festival, when folks engage a script that they fall in love with and ask, how can we produce this? I trust and expect that there will be elements of this, that the vocabulary and the repertoire of practice that has emerged in this remote era will continue to serve performance makers and community builders and pedagogy, teachers and students as we move forward. I don't think it's going to be easy. I think we're at the beginning of a remote turn, of a turn in which remote is part of the re of the repertoire of practice for everyone. And I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to be <clears throat> going to be easy. Um, indeed, the culture shock fears I've already expressed, but I do think it's something we're we're moving toward. And I would encourage anybody who happens to still be listening to me yammer on that we be alert to those things that we want to keep learning from. Not preserve, not protect, not to take forward, but what have been the learning, the things that we've learned about ourselves, about the ways we like to engage, the ways we like to do things. What discoveries have we made that we would like to hold con consciously as we move forward to whatever comes next? To make sure that we don't waste the period we've just gone through and not learn from it and take those learnings forward. To take those discoveries as tools that we will continue to use, questions we continue to ask, invitations we continue to explore as we continue to move forward in a life together that now has had the shared collaborative collective um, disruption and trauma and galvanizing force of what the last year and a half has brought on so many different registers. The world will continue to change as a result of what's happened in the last 15 months, I'm very clear. But I think as we think about teaching, if we think about pedagogy, as we think about going to school, as we think about performance, as we think about going to the theater, I hope that we hold on to the discoveries that we've made and to build those forward in a way that can keep us um, deeply and truly engaged with building a better future in which um, performance can become a laboratory for different kinds of experiments as we continue to explore how we live in community with each other in responsible and humane ways. Thank you for listening. If you've been listening all the way along and it's been a privilege to share my thoughts and my ruminations with you each, each week. And um, who knows, I may be back. I may not, but you know where to find me at Stinky Lulu. Just always search for Stinky Lulu. It's probably going to be me. Okay.
here we go. Our last time going out the way we always go out. Toodaloo. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, which is the unceded ancestral land of the Lenny Lenape. As I join you today, I do so in honor of the ongoing history and living culture of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people, in honor of the other indigenous caretakers of these lands and these waters, of the elders who lived here before, of the indigenous people living today, both within and beyond the sound of my voice, and of the generations yet to come. Stinky Lulu says the podcast began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes that are still available somewhere on the SoundCloud. The podcast then lay dormant for several years until the spring of 2020 in the early days of the COVID-19 shutdown, which inspired a six-episode reboot. So Stinky, Stinky Lulu says returned, both as a way to respond to the unfolding crises and also as a teaching resource for a course I was then teaching in 21st century Latinx drama. With summer came a brief hiatus, but with our campus still closed, the podcast returned for a cycle of 10 or 11, depending on how you count, at new episodes in the fall of 2020, running August through November as a part of a different course, Theater and Society Now. That course is a course I have again been teaching this spring of 2021, hence this fourth cycle of episodes, which began in the beginning of February and which have continued to land in your podcast stream most Sundays through today, April 25th. 2021. And as today's episode goes silent, it may indeed mark the beginning of an indefinite and possible permanent hiatus for the podcast. Or not. We shall see. It has been my honor and my privilege to share my thoughts with you in this way over these last 15 months, so I consider this a closing of a chapter. And time will tell whether, if or when another podcast chapter may begin. But if you have podcast thoughts about the podcast, its conclusion, or its future, you can always have your say about what Stinky Lulu says by letting me know through the usual channels. You can find me easily on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also always email me via my Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. Links to resources referenced in most episodes can mostly be found in the corresponding weekly edition of my hashtag ClearClick newsletter. For a, link, for a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. That's scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. A direct link to the Profe Herrera tab is also the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at StinkyLulu. That Profe Herrera tab is where you'll find all kinds of things, including the link to today to the transcript for today's podcast. And transcripts are typically available within 48 hours, give or take, of the podcast's first posting. So, until next time, whenever that might be, as you maintain your social distance, as you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds, as you encourage everyone in your circle to get vaccinated, and as you continue to wear your dang mask in public and in groups, hold tight to the words of Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. Be strong, be safe, be anti-racist. And as what we do, as we, all of us, do whatever we can do along those lines, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>